This is Speaking of Shakespeare, a series of conversations about all things Shakespearean, with the focus on new digital technologies and also about developments in Shakespearean performance and education across the globe. I'm Thomas Dabbs, recording this introduction from Aoyama Gakuin University in central Tokyo. The following conversation is with Pip Wilcox of the National Archives in the United Kingdom. Pip is head of research at the National Archives and has a long and fruitful career, including her contributions to digital scholarship and her prior leadership role at the Center for Digital Scholarship at the University of Oxford. Pip's role in archival research and digital development crosses paths often with students and scholars in Shakespearean studies. Before we begin, I should add that this conversation is sponsored by the Aoyama Vision Initiative at Aoyama Gakuin, and that this series is also funded by a generous grant from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science called Kaken. And this organization, thankfully, includes support for research in the humanities. Hello, Pip. How are you? This is just a joy for me. It is absolutely joyful to see you again. And I know the last time I saw you was the uh, Digitizing the Stage Conference in Oxford in the summer of 2019. So how have you been? Hello, Tom. Happy New Year to you. It's Happy so New lovely Year. to see you. <laughs> um, two, 2019 feels like quite a long time ago. It, it seems it seems like another era, it, like the Paleolithic age or some kind of separate <laughs> era, <laughs> era that we lived in. And I, I don't know about you. I look at uh, people, you know, just anything, a YouTube video or just films or television. And I see people sitting beside each other in as audiences in shows or theater or whatnot. And it looks, it looks strange now. Yes. Two meters. You say two meters. <laughs> yes. But they, that was a fantastic uh, conference, wasn't it? What wonderful, wonderful speakers oh, we had. And we yeah. organised it with our lovely friends at the Folger Shakespeare Library with Eric Johnson and his team. Yes. Um, and it was a joy. I'd left, I started organising it before I left my previous job and they very kindly um, made space for me in the conference to come back and talk about some of the work that's, um, that my, my current, but uh, my, my colleagues then as well were, were doing. Um, it was oh, what a, a lovely time we spent at the at the Bodleian in Oxford. Beautiful surroundings, fun. beautiful weather. And do you remember we went to the early modern pub in Whiteham um, for the for the conference dinner? Yeah, I have actually an apology from. <laughs> <laughs> I they were serving white wine, and white wine in my metabolism doesn't mix so well. So I didn't, is, I, I was just a little bit um, disoriented because I never drank white wine. I drank red wine and uh, so forth. And I, we were at the table and I think I was doing some uh, impromptu acting uh, about an angry character, maybe in a Shakespeare play, or maybe I was impersonating an angry so American Southerner. And I realized that I have reached the age where I, when I do that, I do it too well. And a couple of people at the table sort of looked at me suspiciously, like, 
you know, is this guy really like that? And I said, no, no, it was just an act. I was impersonating a Southern sheriff or something like that as a joke. So if I scared you, I apologize. Well, they do still talk in Whiteham Village about that time an angry American professor. <laughs> I, I had no recollection you know, of that. I'm sure no one else does. <laughs> there are just these various places in the world that I go where they say, listen, watch out for this man. You know, he um, uh, comes out of a, se a 70s movie where he apparently was a highway patrolman or a deputy sheriff somewhere in the South. Uh, but anyhow, uh, what really happened to that it, it was so relaxing and there were so many fine personalities there and colorful uh personalities and uh the people and everything that happened the papers the uh camaraderie was just so good and i really really missed that you know you, you're in a world where you go if everything froze if we actually were living in software like the matrix and everything froze right here these are the people I would choose, you know? These We've been people. so lucky, haven't we, Tom? Yeah. I, it, we, we are so lucky we have this technology. I, it's not yeah. the same as being in a room with you, but it's pretty yeah. close. And the people yeah. that we've had the opportunity to, to meet, we've had both of us quite long careers already. And I, I think yeah. you, you from everything that you've told me, but I've met such extraordinary, wonderful, kind people, brilliant people. Yeah. And we, we carry them with us, even if we are only looking at them in little boxes on, on our dining room tables, kitchen tables, our desks, what have you. Yeah. Well, one of the points of this uh, particular program that, uh, that we're doing here is to try to bring the human element to people who, when we, when we spread out to the world, when people talk about uh, librarians, library scientists, working in digital archives and so forth, and we're gonna get there, talk about Shakespeare professors or, or just university professors. Very often when I'm watching a, a YouTube video or a program uh, where people are being interviewed about this issue or that issue, almost invariably professors are put in their ivory tower. They don't know anything about the world. They're these people who apparently wear ascots and smoke pipes and look down on everyone. <laughs> And I wanted to, uh, in doing this series, show the show who we are, who, who we really are. You know, we are just people who followed something that interested us. And fortunately, we got through, you know, uh, it's, it's not easy, but it, we, we got to do things that we love. And I wanted to ask you about your work now and and even the physical environment, are you at home right now or are, okay, so no, are you, you do not go to the office? No, so um, my team and, um, and I, the, the team I work in, we haven't been at work since March. There was one day when one of my colleagues went in, uh, we were hosting um, uh, an event, uh, an annual digital lecture with the, the brilliant Carly Kind, who's um, director of the Ada Lovelace Institute. And my wonderful colleague, we had so many contingency plans in place, but one of the things that we didn't have a contingency plan for and made one up on the day, because she's fantastic, um, was that the internet went down um, oh. completely. Her service provider had a, had a you know, um, just, just complete loss of service. 
and uh, that happened she realized when she woke up she left it till about 10 o'clock in the morning um this is louise seaward who's um just a fantastic colleague of mine and so she dropped us a, an email to say so i'm going to go into the office fortunately lockdown was not at its height then um so she, yes we went ahead with it it was fine what we didn't know and i'm part of me is horrified and part of me is so grateful to, to carly kind our, our speaker is that she was in the same um, the same broadband service unit she'd oh. also lost internet and it came on quarter of an hour before she was due to join us she was at the point of leaving so um, yes other than other than that one occasion um, our whole team has been working from home since March which in some respects feels as though it's been most of our lives and in other respects feels as though it's um it's, it's only been a few weeks because apart from the seasons apart from watching the leaves fall off the tree outside um it it yes there's a there's an odd sort of um concertinering effect of time sometimes it feels fully stretched out yeah. sometimes it's squashed into a tiny space but yes and uh, as things stand in the uk um i think probably we, we might review that again in march um, but that's just our team in, at the National Archives. Um, we have been able, my, my colleagues have just been extraordinary. Um, the collections, some of the collections are on site, many of them are on site. So, of course, we have security there and our brilliant cleaning staff have stayed there throughout and they're just the, the completely sort of unsung heroes of this. It's, it's the people who keep us all safe. Um, so that we, we've, had, and we've had other people in various departments where people need to be on, on site. Um, some people have come in, but far reduced numbers. And then we open to the to the public again in a limited way, obviously, with social distancing. Um, so we have been open um, for, for quite a while, um, fitting in as many people as, as possible into the space that we have, keeping everybody, them and, and us safe. Um, and now we're closed again because we're in a, another national uh, lockdown. It's not not deemed safe. Um, so, yes, it's been an up and down, up and down year, but we are so lucky to be able to do our work um, completely from home. And actually in, in our team, we we went pretty seamlessly online. Um, yeah, there's been the odd hiccup, but there've been very minor hiccups and nothing that couldn't be sorted out with a bit more equipment being um, being sent home, like a yeah. monitor, for example. And everything was online already. So um, even I think the I think the National Archives has done a brilliant job of going online, but in our team, it's it, it really doesn't deserve any. I mean, it just happened. We, we were pretty much working that way already. So what we did do was put in lots more meetings um, so that we could catch up because we're a really close knit team. Um, and at the beginning, we were meeting half an hour every morning to check in um, and half an hour in the evening to drink tea talk nonsense that, that's cut down a bit we <laughs> quite a lot actually uh, but we still we still meet most mornings um and check in and there's always a does anyone need any help um with anything stage and of course we have many meetings throughout the day see we i don't know if it's the same with you we seem to spend most of our lives in in video conferencing calls but how is it with you are, is this your office are you, are you this is work? my yes this is my office this is my office and we can come to work uh the we've had we've had a spike recently but uh there is a semi-functionality we are teaching every, all teaching is online i finished a meeting i'm in my evening you're in your morning but we had a, a faculty meeting today that was all online 
a couple of my colleagues were here, but we do not gather together. Uh, there's the social distancing, which is kind of natural. It comes very natural. And of course, masking is uh, de rigueur. It's, it's fashion. Uh, and uh, I left, was it this morning? I think I left this morning and got into the elevator where I live and I was down going down and I'm thinking, I, I always forget something. And it doesn't occur to me until I'm down on the first floor that I've forgotten my wallet or something you know, like that. And I've forgotten my mask. And so I had to go right back up, you know, and go in and get my mask. You know, it's just as essential as a wallet would be or, or anything. So that's, that's the way it is. But we, we really are in a state of not knowing. We are finishing up a term online and looking toward a, and you know, the Japanese system is a bit uh, different from the rest of the world, really, in that we start our year in April. So we are we had some discussion today, in fact, about how we might manage a hybrid situation in class or, or uh, all online or not. And there's just a lot of not knowing. And, uh, but anyhow, I wanted you to know that when I introduced you before we got together here, I made it abundantly clear that you are director of research at National Archives in the United Kingdom. And uh, that is a very, to me, I'm very impressed. I'm very impressed with that. And I noticed- It's an amazing job and I love it, but Tom, I'm head of research. We have a director of research and connections. That's Val Johnson. I think that in our conversations before that you have indicated uh, very strongly that you're very happy with, uh, with things as they are at the National Archives. And I received a very nice email from one of your colleagues today who sent me some images. And um, I believe Liz. Uh, Liz Fulton, yeah. yeah Liz Fulton. Yes. And uh, so uh, we exchanged uh, very polite emails and I uh, explained how we will be very protective of these images that are of course uh, protected under um, a, a kind of copyright or their archival material. So it's very special. And we're gonna look at that in a moment. But I wanted to ask you about uh, the National Archives. I know the setup at the Western Wing and the Bodleian where you know, in, the, in the new Bodleian as opposed to the old Bodleian, which was a little bit forbidding, uh, if you were a, uh, what, 23-year-old graduate student seeking to study the, uh, what is it, the Marlowe collection of Edmund Malone in the 18th century, people in the front could be very officious. Uh, and once you got in, everybody was extremely helpful, as they are now. But the Western Wing allows this large uh, foyer, uh, it shouldn't even be called a foyer, it's a, it's a great room in a way of of uh, the uh, of of collections and things that the public can walk in and feel a part of, and uh, exhibitions and a coffee shop and all of that, and I wonder if at the archives I saw the picture that was sent to me. I've never been there, and can you do the same sort of thing at the archives if, if you visit? Absolutely. So it, it's open to the public. Um, we it part of the National Archives. Um, is a unit that used to be called the Public Records Office, and, and they are public records. They belong to the Crown because they're um, so the UK. The the National Archives in the UK is the official archive and publisher 
of the UK government, uh, also in England and Wales. Uh, we have some devolved governments here, as, as, as you know. Um, and so, yeah, we, my colleagues, um, look after the, those collections for the public um, and, and for government as well. We're a non-ministerial um, government department too. So um, all sorts of people need access to them um, or want access to them. And um, yes, it, members of the public can come in. We have a similar large space. It's a different period of building um, the National Archives in, at Kew, um, which is just outside London, to the west of London, um, just up the road from Kew Gardens that I still have a fair few people who believe I work at Kew Gardens because they know I work in Kew, um, which would be lovely, but I don't. Uh, it's, not in, and... it's not in the garden area. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's located nearby. Uh... Exactly. A few minutes walk away. Yes, Kew is, is an area. Um, it's not just a garden. Yes. Um, uh, yes. Uh, so yes, the public is, is welcome to um, to come in. Anyone can come in. That the the gatekeepers are um, not perhaps quite so fierce as uh, as you came across at the Bodleian back in the day um, when you were first um, dipping a toe into Malone's library. Um, uh, yes, so any anyone can come in. Obviously, you need you need a um, a ticket, but that's very straightforward to, to get. Um, and um, we also have a big cafe when the space can be cleared and used for used for other things quite a big space upstairs um as well which is where uh, where the reading rooms are too a big sort of central social space um and there's an exhibition space as well um which is similar to the to the western library part of the bodleian in in oxford um yes it's one of the sadnesses that obviously at the moment um we, well, the building is closed to the public because of lockdown, um, but of course the exhibitions aren't on. And an exhibition had just opened when we uh, when we closed to the public or closed um, for for lockdown in in March in 2020. Um, and I just heard yesterday that it's gone online. Uh, so they've done put a huge amount of effort into taking this wonderful exhibition called With Love, um, and they've taken it online. Love letters over 500 years or so that are in our collection. It's an extraordinary collection. I think people might assume it's just the census or you know just um, things that on the surface look like box ticking government records, but it, it, it's huge and vast and far more diverse than than I have any idea about. About every other day, someone tells me something that's in the collection. I think, really, that's amazing. Um, what is it? What a wonderful. Career wonderful millions, idea. 11 million government records i think things oh, photographs and posters government. and designs and love recipes letters. and love letters <laughs> love letters what a great place to start with love you know what a great place to start and the title of the and this is open access now you're saying that uh, whatever is that right you can okay. Yes, the, yeah. that exhibition is is online, um, and the, the curator of it, Vicky Igolkovsky Broad, um, she, there's a lovely little YouTube video. Um, sorry, little as in it, it's short. It won't take people much time to um, to, to to watch, but um, she talks through some highlights of the exhibition, and you can explore more of it. Well, online. I'm going to see. Uh, I'm going to watch that uh, after we finish. In fact, that, that's delightful, and it's entitled "With Love." All right, yes. so I'm thinking in Google world, if I went into Google search and said, with love, National Archives, UK, probably I would get the link and could uh, yes. explore. That is wonderful. Uh, I, I remember, oh, well, the poet 
the poet Hart Crane, the American poet, has a, a wonderful poem about uh, letters, grandmother's uh, letters and love letters and things like that. And, uh, you know, it's something when people, uh, people find things like this when they, uh, when unfortunately when their parents pass away or a loved one pass away and they, they are involved in cleaning up uh, the house and they just find in a little box these, these things that are really private, but after the person has passed become something that you feel that you can, you can get in touch with the loved one, but also with anyone, anyone, you feel like the, the human connection so strongly. Um, and I'm wondering if we're going to be left with a bunch of ang <laughs> angry responses to uh, uh, Instagram or, or, or Twitter <laughs> or Facebook threads where it's <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm very careful what I put out there because these things survive and they, you know, it, we're not there now, but the technology will be there where you could search out one of us 150 years from now. And I don't want people seeing me angry. I would rather than find a, a very private love letter because it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter then. Right. And that puts us so much in, in touch. Now, the, the records at the National Archives, I've noticed from your website, uh, uh, you guys have grac graciously and thankfully made available for open access viewing uh, a number of things during the pandemic. And I guess this is one of them. Uh, and is there? Yes. A, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. People across the archives in all, all different departments, you know, the, the bits that probably people, most of us don't think of most of the time when we uh, when we think of large institutions, but people have done a huge amount of work to take all the services that we offer um, online. So for example, my colleagues in um, education and outreach have done a huge amount because so many people have been homeschooling um, and uh, they have something called time travel TV uh, to help people with their, with their history. Um, we've taken training online and actually there have been some benefits of that because before we offered training to people who could come training and um, working in the archives uh, to people who could come physically to queue but with a lot of work behind the scenes able to offer it um, to, to anyone sort of, to make it available to anyone anywhere in the world to come um, you know, it's not an unlimited resource because you still have to have a, a you know a, a zoom call or, or similar um, with enough people in the not so many people in the room that they can't ask questions it's still a training session um, but we are able to offer those things online and my amazing colleagues in um, team led by Catherine Elliott have uh, have managed to get so many of our images online and freely available to the public and the response has been absolutely enormous um, people have hugely made um, it take rightly taken advantage of, of that opportunity, the number of downloads that we've had, because things were available, but they were available for a, a small fee. Conversations are ongoing about what will happen after this. As you say, we hope the pandemic will end one day, maybe quite soon. Um, but yes, they it has been tremendously well well received. Obviously, people are disappointed that they haven't been able to visit um, visit in person. And some of the things, I mean, you know, you, you love your books as well. Sometimes it's the materiality of, of the records of, of the documents that um, that you need to see. Um, and of, we have experts on hand still online to help people. But it's not the same as being able to talk to an expert at a desk, looking at the document in front of you. Um, but 
yeah doing the best we can and and clearly people are, are making the most of it and enjoying that the access that they do have limited yeah. as it is yeah well uh, we have a small special collections at my university and we're making the effort we we are a lemonade stand compared to the <laughs> collections at the archives of course but we have some very fine uh, Bibles. We have a, 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 some uh, very, we have an, uh, uh, several very, very nice uh, editions that we're now digitizing and, and putting online and sharing with the Folger. And the, one of the, one of the two or three main points I wanted to make in this particular conversation is the fact that most people, and this includes scholars, and I'll talk about scholars and non-scholars just a moment, in, in, in just a moment, but most people in the world do not live near these uh, wonderful institutions like the National Archives, like the Bodleian, like the Folger, and so forth. And so the more that goes online, online the more a scholar in, uh, in India, uh, in you know, I, I get contacted by scholars all over the world now, but in Malaysia or in Enid, Oklahoma, or they might live just a little bit distance uh, from the from these areas in the UK. Uh, this this for people who remember having to do scholarship uh, and getting paper cuts, going through card catalogs, and realizing that the absolute what you absolutely needed the most that book was just not available. That, you know, if, if the Bodleian were across the street, you'd be fine. If the National Archives, if you're, what, a historian or a, a, a English lit professor, there are so many things that segue into your research. Uh, but I had one quick story about doing research. I haven't researched your place yet, but I did research at the Metropolitan Ar Archives in London. And I walked in and there's this little lunch room with lockers and it was, it was very worker day. You know, you felt like, oh, they're, they're regular people here. And I found something that was very, <laughs> you know, very, very important. It was a print of, uh, it was actually the Vischer printed the city of London that they have there. And they brought it out for me and showed it to me. And I, I got to spend a long time looking at the if it's not the original, it was a very good, it was an engraving. So everything is a reproduction, but it was a very uh, close to the time of the engraving and you could see all the detail and, and so forth. And uh, in fact, uh, in the afternoons, uh, a gentleman came up to me and said, what are you doing with this? I said, I, I asked for it and they gave it to me because I don't think you're supposed to. <laughs> so that happened. But during lunchtime, I went in to have my little, I had a little box lunch and there were these normal people, you know, some pensioners, some guys that, that they just look like normal people. They were spending the day at the Metropolitan Archives. And a lot of them, I think, were doing family research or research into their parish church or that sort of thing. So I, I don't know if the general public, I know these people did, but the general public doesn't understand how much fun one can have looking through archives, even if you're not a scholar. But I did want to ask you if, if someone like me who had a scholarly interest, uh, interest came in, I'd probably have to have a little letter from a colleague saying, this guy is not, 
even though he's notorious at that place in Oxfordshire, he's actually a pretty good guy. Just don't uh, feed him any, you know, don't let him drink any uh, white wine. And, uh, but is that the way it would be like at the Oxford where you would come in with a letter of recommendation and... So I believe you come in with, with identification. So we, you know, yes. having, having proof of identification, you're then able to call up anything. Things are slightly different at the moment. We ask you to, to order things up in advance and documents are quarantined after they've been seen by, handled by one person yeah. um, for a little while. But th these are current sort of special conditions for, for obvious reasons. Now, many people come in and... And I, I think increasingly it's not necessarily meaningful to draw a distinction between the scholars and the general public. I mean, I, I like your idea that they look like normal people, well, which yeah. it doesn't. <laughs> I, I think I'm almost normal myself. Um, uh, but, but people have such... It, some people have have job titles that suggest that their that, that their their main job is research. Though I, I know a lot of university professors who'd say there's a fair amount of of admin as well as the teaching and and, and so on. Um, but many people, you know, many of, of our leading experts on things aren't necessarily you know that that's they don't necessarily come from um, university researchers or, or you know college um, college professors um, and aren't necessarily professional historians. Obviously, there's another group of people who are hugely learned who write. Um, who, who make their make their living writing about history or, or addressing history to, to public audiences through you know, many means, often television, but not only that. But um, you can be a world leading expert or a really, really knowledgeable volunteer on a number of projects um, and, uh, and, and bring expertise, which is you know, completely unknown in the academy and often um, often doing research into into in, into parts of our, our our past which aren't so aren't so well studied um, so uh, yeah it's, it's a delight to be able to work with any and, and all um if, all people who are interested in, in our collections for any number of reasons um some of them very personal some of them practical um as well as looking at the more distant past and tracing for example your family through it it's a very popular um, yeah. tradition there of genealogy yeah and i feel like a normal person too <laughs> But I, I do feel a little bit separate from a guy who may have had a, a career as a public servant. And like my father was inter is interested in genealogy uh, and spent quite a lot. My father spent quite a long time looking into our family genealogy. Of course, it's an endless, it's an endless matter of interest uh, for all of us. Americans, of course, want to try to figure out where they came from, you know. And uh, I, in fact, asked my father, I said, did we descend from some great family, you know, in England or something like that? He said, we were one step ahead of the sheriff where the sheriff put us on the boat. <laughs> That's, I'll never forget that. And uh, so, uh, and we, we did well after that. Uh, but so uh, what I would like to do is segue a little bit into uh, bearing the fact that we are all normal. Some of us normal folks went into literary studies and Shakespearean studies. And I know you, uh, I know you studied Anglo-Saxon. We're going to get to that in, in a moment. And I, I have a few questions to ask you about Beowulf. And, but to, to go to the Shakespeare uh, part, and I put this in the introduction also, is that uh, what we, we do not sometimes even in field, in our di discipline, recognize the unsung heroes 
of what is made available to us in library science, in digital collections, in digital development. We just don't know who those people are. And I've had the pleasure being a part of the digital humanities community to meet you and to meet many other people. The list of names goes on of this, these delightful people who are working on these projects that are, that are scale projects. So they're not focused on Shakespeare, but they help us because Shakespeare's there. And so I, uh, you sent, right before we began, some images of Shakespeare that are held by the National Archives. And one of them is the, it just starts with pro. We're not really sure. It's this detective story, a Shakespeare who, a picture that was found in Vienna. And it was purchased by a gentleman who in Paris, who gave it to the Royal Shakespeare Company, I believe. Uh, as was, a, that, was that Venice rather than Vienna? Yeah, did I say Vienna? Oh, I Venice. It was Venice, like <laughs> Merchant of Venice. <laughs> you know, same thing. <laughs> Some place in Europe begins with a V. <laughs> Venice. It was found, let me start over. It was found in Venice, which of course was one of the focuses of Shakespeare's uh, drama and so forth. Yeah. And it was a, a place where there was a group of a Catholic, uh, it was a sort of Catholic stronghold, I think of maybe some expatriates. I'm not, I'm not sure about this history, but both Johnson and Shakespeare may have been or suspected of being uh, Catholic sympathizers. And, you know, I, I have looked into this myself, you know, the, uh, uh, oh, the, uh, the, the idea that the ref during the Reformation, the curtain didn't just drop, you know, if, if you were there, your, your grandparents worshiped in whatever they thought was the Christian church was what we would call the Catholic church. It's an interesting topic of conversation though, how this print showed up. And of course it is more a testimony to the reception of Shakespeare because apparently it doesn't have much to do with the Shakespearean <laughs> age, but it was done maybe in the later 17th, 18th century. And it shows how enduring the need to find an image of Shakespeare was through the centuries and continues to be, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. And there's another, yeah. there's another image of the uh, Shakespeare and his contemporaries from 1906 that I think was, uh, uh, I'm not sure of the history of that, but where, where it was at Stationer's Hall, I believe it was where it was, it came from, but uh, it's still a mystery to me, the movement of Stationers Hall, and I need to do more research on that. But these are really interesting. Me too, because we, we hold some of their records, but not all of them. I know um, Stationers Hall still yeah. holds some of their own. Yeah, like They've there's... been kind enough to welcome me there um, years ago now on, a, on another project I worked on on their um, yeah. Yeah, Stationers Register. But that, Yes, I don't know about that one. I know a very little bit about the Venice one, but as you say, was probably two portraits mashed together. There's just this 
desire yeah. isn't there to find anyone in approximately the right age address with a high forehead any any man um yeah. with a high forehead and say no that's definitely Shakespeare yeah but it does look like Shakespeare right it does look even, even though we don't in really as much as we know what he looks like from right. from one engraving and one bust um or, or, right. yes made after his death both of them uh but but for people who knew what he looked like yes uh, sorry it, I, I, I should be no, more yes it's definitely him. it's eternally interesting it's eternally interesting to to me but to a, a lot of people the the history of this this thing this this thing that survived uh, the Shakespearean period that became something I think way far more than the actual Shakespeare or any of those people around uh ever thought it would be you know the 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 afterlife reception and it's it's sort of explosion over time and it's just still going uh yeah, time and space I, time he, and space. he had such an eye for a story I mean, we know yes they went all his to begin with he borrowed them as well and everyone's been borrowing them since yes. but it's almost extraordinary oh it is extraordinary that that it's almost unbelievable. I think that one human could have done, could have written so much that's touched so many people. And, and we know that writing was only one of his jobs. He's, he seemed to be very good at a, a fair few others, yeah. um, a business owner and acting and, and so on and so on. Um, yes, and I think that that need to find something to look on, to look on a human being who looks more or less like, like us and think, how, how did that come from from this one person there is that that need to humanize while wondering at it because the stories are the stories are just amazing um and uh, the, the plays are beautiful but the the way they've been adapted adapted into ballet pictures photography plays films uh, yeah and and any number of um of borrowings of the stories they yeah yes there was it, it Yes, people need to find a connection with the human who started started the ball rolling. Well, there's a sort of joke, I mean, among some, some of us about the, the, what was the word, bardolatry that began really in the eight, 18th century and the, continual, the, the continuing iconic Shakespeare that has become attached with all things academic and ascot and pipe and ivy uh, tower, that sort of thing. But you get into the reading of the plays and it's there, it is there. And recently I interviewed uh, Alexa Jovin who grew up in Taiwan and she encountered Shakespeare through Charles Lamb's Tales of Shakespeare. And you have moved in from the 16th century to essentially a kind of London centered thing and you're all over the world. And in, in affecting the courses of people's lives it changes lives. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about your life in just a moment. But I did want to mention that I did look into your collections. And I have uh, really after that Oxford conference, I took a much greater interest in the National Archives. And you do have Chancery Court records. They're not open access, but they're the Chancery Court yeah. for people who are experts. And I'm not one of them. I'm kind of okay. But chancery courts were an odd sort of thing. And we don't uh, have that type of uh, business now. But that's where you, 
you kind of would go in and say, you know, this man uh, stole two of my pigs and I want my pigs back. And uh, it's either that or we're going to have to fight uh, for it. And, and, you know, these, these sort of settlements that were sort of a, a little independent of common law where you could plea for, yeah. make a plea for certain things. And the 16th century records and the trial scenes that are sort of impromptu trials like the Merchant of Venice, where they have the trial of Shylock, which I don't know, it may or may not have followed the proper uh, court protocol, but it looks to me to be more reflective of a, of a kind of chancery trial, minus the fact that they would allow someone to take a pound of flesh. Right in the end, and, and they didn't. Thanks, they, Portia. They didn't, they didn't. But we knew they <laughs> yes, wouldn't. Spoiler because, alert: it, yeah. it doesn't end that way. <laughs> Fortunately, yeah, so, yeah. absolutely, that would be uh, yes, that would be a different play. Um, so I am no expert on these at all, as, as as you can imagine. But I was chatting about these to um, to a colleague, a friend of mine, Neil Johnston, who is an expert in these. Um, he and Amanda Bevan, um, and Amanda in particular, this is this is her area have done a huge amount of work trying to make them, trying to make these records more accessible. He says, and here's a top tip for anybody who's um, interested in researching this area, that it's vastly understudied and enormously rich. Yeah. Um, the, these, um, uh, th this was a new sort of court that was set up under Elizabeth I, yeah. um, he tells me, and it was, it was to give, normal people it, it cost um but to give access to, to royal justice to anyone who had a complaint um so things that didn't have precedent in law um you would go with a, a particular complaint um and uh put your case and then evidence would be gathered and they're not i think it's not straightforward um to research through them until you're familiar um because the records pertaining to one case aren't all in the same place um, that they're in, in several, yeah, in, in several different, the different parts of the case are kept separately. So it can be quite hard to find, but there are, um, there's, there's lots of help online and there's lots of help that uh, my colleagues can give. Um, but they have the voices of so many people who otherwise might be lost to the record because they'll get sworn statements from, from people, interrogatories, they're called where, where people ask questions and then answer on, on the record. Um, and evidence is sought so you can find all kinds of things about life about about life at that period and it runs through to the 19th century so it's yeah it's a long period but people have done amazing work um uh on on this around the theatres in london and, and shakespeare in particular someone's been doing work into shakespeare's father um and found um yeah found evidence of of him and his business dealings um in there as well fines paid by um yeah, fines that were being paid off by him. Uh, license fees as well um, are in there for the theatres. There's all sorts, and they just aren't aren't that studied. You do, you know, um, it, you have to put a fair amount of work into learning a new hand um, to to be able to read these records. But once you've got your eye in, and there's plenty of help that people can find online to that. Um, yes, the records are fantastic. The reason they're not available is that they haven't been imaged. Uh, most of them. So some of the indexes and some of the decrees, which are the judgments, are available um, on a website that doesn't belong to us. It's called the Anglo-American Legal Tradition. Um, and it's got a fantastic amount of, um, a, a, a fantastic number of images of these pages. It's not 
it's not perhaps the easiest to navigate around and you'll need to do it sort of cross-reference with our catalogue that Amanda Bevan and, and colleagues have put a huge amount of work into making much more um, much more friendly for, um, for, for users um, with much more information in there. But uh, yes, it is an extraordinary collection. And there we are. Neil Johnston says, go and do research into it when times permit. Well, this is a this is a lesson for you know any young scholar, young Shakespearean or another young scholar who hears what I heard from the public and even within the profession. It's just been done. It was, you know, essentially it was finished by about 1910, you know, and everybody else has been talking about theoretical matters. And I'm going, no, I, that's not what I've seen. I've seen some a lot of work since then. And I was at a conference uh, a few years ago that was sponsored by Andy Kesson at Roehampton. Uh, and and uh, it, it was such a delightful summer conference where, again, we had the people you wanted to be in the matrix with, it's just delightful all the way through. And the American scholar who was at the University of Michigan, Bill Ingram, uh, part of his talk, he was a plenary, and part of his talk was basically he said, I was told this, and he's, he's on in years now. And even then he was told, yeah, it's pretty much been done. And then he found these records office and I can't remember precisely what it was, but he made his way to London and he got in there and he goes, this is, this is all new. It was very old, but it's all new. There's, there's an entire career. And his message to the younger scholars there, you find that archive and you'll find that there are just pages and pages and of records and so forth that, you know, we've barely begun, you know, and, and uh, you know, as, as we develop, as we do get them imaged and as we do get more sophisticated in uh, digital search technology, we're, we're pretty good now, but we, we can, we're going to get better. Um, yeah. And uh, they're just these treasures there that are somewhere in the National Archives also. And yeah, those Chancery Court records Absolutely. are a good example. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I, one hears, oh, that's been so studied. I have some sympathy with the idea that Shakespeare has been a lot studied and perhaps to the exclusion of other things that we could study. And, and there are all sorts of challenges to, to the canon that, that we teach and that we learn um, for, for very good reason. And with, with those views, I'm, um, I'm very sympathetic. With the, oh, don't you worry, young scholar, I've been here and I've done it all and there's nothing for you to see, the complete opposite of, of, of what you were just saying. But yeah. one hears that kind of thing. Yeah. What nonsense, what nonsense. There are so many archives still to discover and I, it's one of the things that I find enormously exciting that um, often working so hand in hand side by side with with the brilliant people who work in archives who know the records really well it's, it's not their job to sit and and, and read uh, you know that then they have a different job from that of researcher but they know their collections so well even some that haven't been catalogued yet but certainly they can help people interpret them and point them in the right direction in that you know as, as a as a partnership um there is so much to to discover um and a small plea that when you do discover something, please don't say we found it in a dusty archive. They're very rarely dusty. And 
and this was completely unknown and you think well apart from the like centuries of people who have been curating it cataloging it and told you which box to look in but apart from that it was entirely unknown yes I I, I do understand the excitement the excitement is still is still there though but also even if someone has read it and written about it before we know from looking at um at the plays and and taking a literary approach to them rather than situating them historically everyone has a new interpretation every every different generation half generation will bring a completely different worldview to it and that's that's the richness of studying literature that it's it doesn't just take you to the time it was it was written in, in, in imaginatively you also bring your time to it and it's it, you co-construct you co-create um a, a story anew every time you um you you every time you stage a play every time you read a book you change all the time the society has changed all the time around you there is so much so much more that can be that can be said and that can be challenged well we've been talking about records but i think there uh, is a, an enormous collection of maps and probably it, uh, it, I think I read that. Did you have some maps? Oh, huge. Yes, I think it's huge. the second biggest hand-drawn map collection in the world. It's yes, vast, that's, that's a, yeah. Hand-drawn maps. Okay, so that segues into archaeology and history. That goes into other fields other than people who are, say, primarily historians or maybe literary critics who got off the uh, path a little bit and want to do some cultural history, like the guy who's talking to you now, uh, I, I just get very interested in the uh, archaeology of particularly London during the 16th century, obviously. But uh, those things, too, that are cross-disciplinary and are applicable to a number of areas. Number one, people probably just want to know what the building looked like. Where was it? We were talking about the Stationers Hall. It's, it's, uh, I'm sure someone out there kind of knows this, but it's still a mystery to me how it went from old St. Paul's. Uh, well, when you came in through the West Door, it was over at uh, 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 Peter College that it once belonged to the Roman Church, but it was, you know, uh, uh, repurposed and was apparently very grand, right? But uh, I remember staying close to the cathedral in a hotel and looking out the window and seeing a building that said Stationers Hall. And I, I, I didn't uh, get up, drum up the courage to walk in the door. Sometimes I do. And I've been greeted very officiously, as I've told you before. Um, I've driven into, I, I, in fact, when I was a college student, I hired a car with my uh, colleagues. You know, we're 20, 21 years old. And I wanted, I was doing some research on T.S. Eliot. And I heard that he uh, had a, 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 a maybe kind of short stint at a uh, public school. Uh, where The town in between Oxford and London, um, there's the, oh, I'm, I want to say, uh, Oh, it'll, it'll come to me. But anyway, I, I drove straight there. There's no Google or navigational anything. I just looked on a map and I drove straight into the quad in the middle. And really, there was a, a little bit of fuss about that. Like a few men came out there and said, well, what are you what are you doing here? You, you can't park here. And I said, well, I'm a, I'm a student in the States and I'm doing research on T.S. Eliot. And uh, I, I would just I understand that he taught here. 
And he said, well, come in and have tea. <laughs> it's just immediate, then immediate turnaround. And they introduced us to an accountant in town who uh, had been taught by T.S. Eliot. And they called him. This was maybe a Tuesday, and it's this afternoon. And said, we have a couple of students from the States, and they want to ask you about T.S. Eliot. And he said, tell them to come by. And we got more tea. And he sat and talked with us for an hour, you know, about what T.S. Eliot was like. It was just wonderful. But anyway, walking into places, you know, people are very shy to do that. And uh, I, I have been sometimes and have not been sometimes. But I think that's one of the points I wanted to make, that the National Archives is a place you can walk right into. It, it belongs to the public. It's there for you. And I'm certain there are a host of librarians who will help you in any possible way they can. Uh, and archivists, Tom, yes. And archivist, an archiv archivist, <laughs> archivist. I'm yes. thinking more of a library, but this is an archive. I'm sorry, that's that's very much, there's a difference there. And, and archivists who are in fact specialists in the collections yes. and knowing where everything is, which is a lot to know. And- it really is. And we have specialists in, in all periods. So, so our, our records start, I think someone told me actually they go a bit before this, but um, our earliest famous one is the Doomsday Book um, from 1086. Yeah. Yeah. And our most recent will probably have been captured today um, because we look after the UK government web archive. Um, so it's yeah, it really runs the gamut and it's, it's everything because government, it, it's the record of government and government touches most areas of our, of our lives and so it takes sometimes it takes some digging to get to the human stories but there are so many human stories in there and I think exhibitions like Vicky's that we talked about earlier the with love exhibition is, is a brilliant example of that but there are many many others yeah do, wherever I government crosses that. people's paths before I forget Shakespeare's will Shakespeare's will. Oh, we, we have Shakespeare's will. That's a, that's a big one. Will. Probably should have. I should, that's my fault. I should have brought that up first. Shakespeare's will. And uh, that, that wasn't your job, Top. That was mine. I should have brought no, up. No, yes, no, which was... he signed in three places because I believe we don't have, um, we don't have uh, holographs, his own handwriting of his plays or yeah. poems. We, we yeah. do have, I think, six signatures and three of them are on his will, which, are at the, which is at the National Archives. And the text of it is it's available on our website and in, in other places as yeah. well. So you can read what he, what he left to whom yeah. um, with, and what conditions were attached. Uh, yeah. Yes. Just that, just that would be enough to bring a Shakespearean over just to see it, you know, is something it, again, it puts you in touch with, yeah. with things that are, uh, to, to see the physical object is good. It's good to be able to see it online, uh, but yes. there's nothing like seeing the physical object, you know, even if it's under glass or, or whatever protected, which, uh, in many cases you have to do because they're so delicate uh, yeah and because some things people want to see because they're famous rather than they necessarily have a, have a research question and one of the things that we do in, in archives and libraries is, is look after the collections for the future and not at the expense of people being able to access them now but there are some collections which having been digitized you, you would need a very particular reason to see the original because otherwise it would be seen and handled so much um, it, it would be damaged and it wouldn't be there for future generations. Yeah well Pip what I want to do now is I want to uh, look into the formation of PIP as a 
as an uh, as a research archivist are, are you you're uh, I I was told by a librarian in the state she goes you understand I do library science and she does very much because she's very much into the digital uh, uh, you know kind of I, I don't know if we call it a revolution some people think it's over and done with actually you know oh you guys have already I think we're just no no this, this, yeah this is uh, <laughs> <laughs> this has not started really, you know, we're, we're in the uh, almost uh, prehistoric period of what's going to happen, right, where you'll just have access yes. pretty much to everything. Uh, but it's slow, it's slow, because we don't have the, we don't have the, the power of a major tech company and the billions of dollars, and the staff and all of this, it's a lot of work is done, almost, you could say volunteer, sometimes it's done for the love of it. Uh, and is, uh, you know, I'm sure right now, you know, that everybody in the National Archives would love to hire an army of trained, trustworthy professionals to put as much as they could out there available for at least for uh, viewing, if not downloading, you know, and there's certain things that you do have to protect even even digitally, I understand that too. You studied Anglo-Saxon and you thought <laughs> enough of that to put that on your webpage at the National Archives that you- Gosh, did I really? You um, did. You did. I, did and I, I saw that it. and I zeroed in on, I said, Anglo-Saxon. Guess who else studied Anglo-Saxon a bit in graduate school? Was that you? That would be me. Tom, I didn't, I, I to... didn't know we had old English in, in common. I, I was lucky enough to go to um, the University of Leicester for my undergraduate and the, I had a whole host of amazing um, tutors and lecturers, but in particular, Greg Walker and Elaine Trahan, both of them yeah. still doing amazing work, uh, one in Edinburgh now and one at Stanford in, in the States. Yeah. Um, and they just their, their passion and enthusiasm and their brilliant, brilliant teaching as, as, as more than the research when you're an undergraduate, I think you, you only come more slowly perhaps to the research that, that your lecturers are doing. It's that, it's that general introduction um, that's, that they give in, you know, even to first year undergraduates and then you get you know, deeper into it as you go. But they just made me fall in love with the medieval period that the later and, and, and the earlier. Um, and also introduced me to the materiality and the joy of that. Um, and Elaine did a brilliant course on editing, which is, was, I, th I think perhaps more people teach editing now, um, but it was very unusual um, then back in the day, a billion years ago, whenever, uh, whenever I was an undergraduate. And that, that bringing together of the, the content of the, um, of the of the literature of whatever's in the, in the in a manuscript with the physicality of it with the materiality of it the opportunity to hold things to handle things that have been made by hand and passed through all those hands it's just extraordinary um and that's what made me fall in love with it so yes i went on to study old english at, at nottingham for um for a year and made my way from that to other medieval later medieval um and then accidentally ended up in the early modern period in, in a job at, um, at the Bodleian working on early English books online text creation partnership. So that was my first introduction really to print, which I'd always, I've been a bit sniffy about if I'm honest, because I just, <laughs> no, that's not fair. I loved manuscripts so much because they're 
you know, quite literally made by made by hand. And I loved seeing, I love it when you find a mistake that a scribe makes because they make them so rarely. They're absolutely brilliant professional medieval scribes, much better at transcribing than, than I am when I have to copy something. <laughs> um, but all the things in the margins and the things that people draw and the, the wine stain where someone's put a cup, you, you see the life of the book and the lives of the people who have touched that book um, yeah. come through. And I... I just hadn't come across so many um, printed books at that stage. And now, of course, as you know, I'm passionate about um, about early printing as well. Not, not just early printing, but you know, hand printing, letterpress printing. It's wonderful. And yes, I was part of this amazing project. You, you mentioned earlier projects that um, that do things at scale. So they don't dig deep into, into something, but they just make it available. And it was a project that took um, images that had been digitized from microfilm. So not the highest, not the quality of images that we take now, but legible, perfectly legible. Yeah. And we're talking um, about Ebo now or? Yes. Yes, early Ebo, the, the early, early yes. Ebo, early English books online for uh, those, those out there who, <laughs> there, there's, a his, <laughs> there's a history. E Ebo itself is a historic, sort of digital project it was very early on but yeah take go ahead they were taking the Absolutely. manuscripts university of michigan i believe was that's the, right yes uh, so it was um chadwick healy a publisher and then which got bought by proquest who made the images available in the 90s and this group of people i, I wasn't involved at the time um from michigan and oxford thought it would be a good idea to try to extract the text from this because even now um optical character recognition ocr is a bit iffy with early books it's getting better all the time but it's it's um and there are fantastic projects looking at it and looking at handwriting too doing amazing things like the the transcribers project at yeah. um at, out of university college london and sorry it, ucl was part of it um but out of the read the european funded read project so it's getting better, but certainly in the 90s um, and, and still now to an extent, um, it's not as good as people at recognizing patterns, um, recognizing words and transcribing them. So this was a fantastic project that, um, that got the text out of all of these, all of these books and encoded it using um, text encoding initiative yep. um, markup to, to make them interoperable, sort of searchable across. And it's still this fantastic resource, which you can use um, through the through the ProQuest site um, or, or several others, in fact, now to, um, to just using it like an index, doing a free text search, um, as you might in, in a Word document you'd written yourself, or you can take the texts at scale that have been marked up and do comparisons right across them and dig into them sort of computationally by taking the whole, you know, all of them all together. There were, I think, was it 25,000 that were made freely available in, 2015 and the rest of them were made available in 2020 i'm guessing there's something like 70,000 early yeah. modern texts yeah. early printed I, texts. I think that's very accurate uh and there was there was also you could get access to the pdfs but not to the uh text encoding so with pdfs of course you couldn't go you couldn't do the search uh function uh, where you know you see a word and you want to see if this word or this idea uh, presents itself again, and I think our history begins in 2013 at the Ebo conference in Oxford that you put together, and I think yeah, that's when I first met you yeah. and uh, John Yamamoto Wilson and um, 
Angela Davenport, from, uh, two of us who were in Japan at the time, we were desperate to have access. We were all working on projects that would have been extraordinarily enhanced with easy access to Evo, and we couldn't get it. So that's where it started. We went there, and then I think at one point you came over to Japan and talked about, I think this was after we managed to get it, Basically, we banged the drum a little bit with some other people. I'm not going to give us credit, you know, I, I don't want to make us sound heroic, but we banged the drum together with some other people and the National uh, Consortium of uh, University Libraries and what this is, they decided to buy a license and to parse it out to uh, universities. We're, we're a pretty big university, but we could not afford the package as it stood. That's for, yeah. you know, super huge libraries and so forth. So you they spread out the cost of it nationally and just got a national license. And then we got it. <clears throat> and life has been just wonderful ever since I mean, really, <laughs> in terms of that, because I can just now just go to Ebo and I can search things out. And I want to give our listeners an example of it's a it's not pedestrian. It's just an, an example of what a Shakespearean might find, right? So David McGinnis at uh, Melbourne uh, does work on lost plays and so forth. He's also a Shakespearean, but he put a little article, I think it was in a university publication about wild goose chase and how the OED locates the first use of the term wild goose chase in, I think, Romeo and Juliet. I may be wrong about that. I think it's Romeo and Juliet, but Wild Goose Chase, and there it is, Shakespeare first use. And there are all these things in the OED about Shakespeare first using it. And he did a simple Ebo search, and he goes, uh, no, <laughs> you know, this was this was a pretty well-known concept. And he wrote a little article about other people who had used versions of Wild Goose Chase and so forth. And I think put it in a university publication, and it was picked up locally by the press, and it went viral. The interest in that, that... Shakespeare didn't really come up with a lot of terms and so forth. And I wrote him during the time and he said, Tom, I, I didn't expect this, you know, just all the, all of this, uh, you know, media attention and so forth. But there are those kinds of things out there that can be discovered. And the more I look into it, yeah. for instance, uh, with Ebo, I can say, okay, there, there's an art in making stuff up, but the art in Shakespeare is bringing those proverbial phrases into bringing popular culture and and and, and populating his text or we say seasoning his text with these familiar terms and things that would really draw people in who lived at that time you so you sort of had to be there but uh, a lot of us are very very interested in bringing that back up and saying this is this, this is the yeah. wider scope of the culture that people were living in, you know, references to nature and, and things. And the in, plague. In the, <laughs> in the play, in the city of London, uh, why, there, why there is a reference, 
why Friar John, I believe, in Romeo and Juliet cannot get the letter to Romeo because he's locked up in a plague house. Because he's being quarantined because they suspect he has the plague, but probably he didn't because he probably wouldn't have survived. But he's quarantined. The he's public quarantined. health officers shut he's, him, lock, yeah. nail him into a house. And until yeah. this last year, I thought that's the most ridiculous plot device in the world, that the guy was grabbed and put into a house and locked in. And that's why... Nope, I understand but now. Actually, yes, that was and you look what happened the, in plagues before Zoom. Yes. <laughs> it wouldn't have been such a good play if there'd been that well, much that, social media in it. Well, there were a few images from Wuhan where the Chinese government you know, was very strict at the very beginning and people were just, you know, in their houses. There, you know, they, they, yeah. and uh yes. and but uh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. So no, absolutely, and and Shakespeare, like every other artist, is part of a much larger, you know, much larger society. And uh, one of his, it, we talked earlier about him borrowing stories. Of course, he borrowed language. Was really playful with it. You know, apparently himself. So people who know much more about it than me, um, you know, tell us. Fantastically creative, but that is that's one of the joys of being an artist is that you do take influences from from everywhere, consciously and, and unconsciously. But you also mentioned the the OED, and, and I know this this is not what was it David McGuinness? Did you say? I, I know it's not what he meant. Um, any any criticism of the OED, but it's us who put it on a pedestal. Our wonderful friends and colleagues who work there. It's just just the other side of, of Oxford, and I know some of them well. Um, it's this amazing project. It was an early citizen research project where people, including some people in prisons who had a lot of time, um, were part of their reading program and would read books and then um, and find that way about earliest usages or, or last usages of, of words. And it's been this huge sort of crowdsourced effort as well as professional effort, obviously, obviously of the lexicographers who live there. They make heavy use of Ebo. And it was a, you know, one of those minor triumphs within in the office where we used to work all together when one of us would find a word and think, that's that, that doesn't sit, that strikes me as odd. This is earlier than I thought that word was used. Um, and would look it up and find indeed it is earlier. But the OED, the people who work there only had what was available to them at the time. And, and now, of course, they're making use of the same digital technologies that, you know, that, that the rest of us are. So they're discovering things all the time and, and updating their records accordingly. But you only find where you look. You know, it's, it's like archaeology. You don't know what you haven't, what, what you haven't surveyed and, and what you haven't dug. Yeah. And because people, you know, because Shakespeare has dominated everything, you know, Shakespeareana and Bardolatry and, you know, all, all of the things that we were talking about earlier he also dominates the dictionary it, it, it's not a yes they weren't trying to inscribe it in stone this is the case but this is the best of our knowledge now and, and that's where you also see the interplay I think um, between that and the scientific method so science when I was at school was the really boring bit because it was just stuff they told you facts and you'd learn a fact and then you knew a fact but it had no relevance to anything and it I was embarrassingly old when I realized that science also is, is about chipping away at the edge of knowledge. It's enormously exciting. It's full of personalities and individual and group efforts and brilliance and mistakes and happy accidents, um, which is all the stuff that I loved in, in the humanities subjects. But it's, it, we're all just people chipping away at the edge. And, and I love the fact that the OED is, is a, the Oxford English Dictionary is a living object. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let, let me pay homage to the OED for uh, this. 
for people who are outside our world, the Oxford English Dictionary, it is a monument. It is a monument and it is, it, it, it is, I go to it all the time to check out meanings of words and I trust it. And uh, it's, so I mean, no criticism for the hardworking staff there all the way through from its early beginnings. Uh, it is, uh, it's a miraculous. It really is a miraculous accomplishment and it's the final word. On, on, on most things. I, I, you know, so many, even my students will say, well, this word it defined by the OED is this end of conversation. You cite the OED and that's it. So, uh, so I um, uh, don't mean to be irreverent uh, in, in the <laughs> least when it comes to the OED, it has helped all of us all the way through. Uh, but it does, it is heavy on Shakespeare. And I think that goes back to its early beginnings and early formations, because that's, those are the texts they had, and uh, and now we have a lot more search capability, and of course that's feeding into the OED. I'm trying to think of the word that most recently I I checked the uh, etymology of. I was doing an article on Midsummer Night's Dream, and there's so much. And I was looking at the records of the um, uh, Office of the Rebels that had been fortunately put into print and reading them and as you're talking about with the chancery records you you'll find out that you it's an education in learning how to read the records you know you, you don't you can't walk in with your knowledge of what happened your knowledge of courts and you can't walk in with your knowledge of drama or anything and read these records because uh, there are so many things that existed in the 16th century that we don't have now, or they're called by another name. And, uh, and I had to figure out, you know, I'm saying, why are they, why are they carrying so much coal in? They seem to be carrying all this coal. I finally figured out, said, because it's cold. They, they need, they, they need heat, you know, they, they need to stay warm. And to, the, the learning experience of going through this uh, record, so that for the OED, but I think that you said something interesting about your personal life, and it happened to me too. When I was in regular uh, school before college, I felt very early on that I was not built for the sciences. And I think I'm mostly to blame. Even as a young boy, I should have been a little bit more disciplined in classes that would have led me that way, a mathematics class or uh, early early um, efforts by teachers to get little Tommy Dabs to move in a certain direction, but uh, my first my first thing, I just knew that I was going to have to go into at either a social science or humanities direction. But the difference is, and I do want to talk about this difference because the show is about education in the states. You can take all the time you want. You know, you go to college and then, duh, you decide a major. And there are those few students who get there. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to law school after college. Or I'm going to be a doctor because if I'm not a doctor, then I'll be thrown out of my family and into the ocean or something like that. Uh, I, I knew guys like that. And then there were the rest of us who uh, just wanted to be able to to do something that we liked 
right? But in the UK, you do, I think you sat for O and A levels. Is that right? In what would be the it was GCSEs by the time I was there general okay so they made that secondary kind of... education it used to be or, oh, ordinary level and then yeah, the they, A, the they made the change yeah. yeah but you still had to specialize and qualify right in in fields when you're what 16 years old or yes and and was dropping subjects from the age of 12 I think um you yeah. had to choose between foreign languages you could only take two forward um, you could drop Latin. Uh, I didn't. Yeah. My mother was the Latin teacher. Oh. Um, but I, I'm so glad I didn't. I wouldn't have dropped it anyway. And you had to choose between the more creative subjects as well. Um, so you could only do two, I think, of um, art and home economics and textiles and something else. I can't remember now. But yes, you, you start dropping subjects very early on um, yeah. in, in the UK. I, I, I believe, and this is not... not <clears throat> Um, my area of expertise at all but I believe efforts have been made to um, take more subjects forward now into the final two years of school so between 16 and 18 um, but yeah. yes still, still we specialize I think much earlier than, than I believe happens in the states for example or in, in other other countries around the world. Well did you know at that time that you were going to go into a humanities area did, was it abundantly clear to you or? Yes Yes, absolutely. I've always loved people and stories and you know, the people through the stories and the stories through the people. Um, and that's why I enjoyed learning other languages because you learn more about other people's cultures and how to communicate. Um, so yes, I, I think I did, but I, there was another strand as well. I, no one will ever write a biography of me. I, I very much hope there's, there's not much to say. But if one if one were going to, um, you could draw a line back and say my mother was a Latin teacher who was passionate, is passionate about um, uh, about music and literature, and my father's a software engineer. And looking at what I do now, you think, oh, huh, yes, well that was obvious. But it's not what it felt like at all. I I was lucky enough to. Um, be able to follow my interests and which is why I ended up doing literature studying literature and language at university and yes I, th I think it was probably quite evident I was always going to go that way and also looking back quite evident that I'd take the historical approach as you were saying that you'd done as well wanting always to situate it in its literature in, in its broader society but no I apart from the fact that these that what I do now or the approaches that I take now weren't available when I was younger. So I think if you want to become a doctor or a lawyer, there are things that you can see um, and imagine perhaps becoming if, if you're fortunate. Um, but the, what, what I have done hasn't existed. So it's just been a succession of happy accidents, um, largely due to saying yes a lot and meeting amazing people, brilliant people who've opened my eyes to so many possibilities. And I'm so lucky to have a job now that, that does exactly that every day. We're working with new ideas and brilliant people doing brilliant things and making new discoveries because of it. And that's what, that's what gets me up in the morning. Well, that and the brilliant, yeah, this is the brilliant people I continue to work with. Yeah, I'm glad the scientists love science and do it. And I'm glad that the computer engineers, the, uh, uh, the mechanical engineers, who are so brilliant are there and they do what they do. And I, I want to also, along with the OED, thank them because I don't have that kind of, I don't have that kind of 
I don't know if it's mind or um, I'm not as driven in that, in that direction, whereas other directions, uh, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go back to graduate school for five years. I was a little bit, you know, to, to finish a PhD or whatnot. And I arrived and I was there, I was broke and uh, I, we had a, a, there was a talk by this gentleman, I think he was at the University of Edinburgh, but he talked about Shakespeare and it was a wonderful talk. I can't remember his name. I'm sure he's long gone now. He was very old then. And we adjourned to the faculty lounge and there was free, there, there was an open bar. You, you know, there was a, uh, back in those days, you can have a beer or have a drink and there was some food out and we're talking and I made a friend there who's become a lifelong friend. And I looked around the room and there were a couple of famous scholars in there and people, you know, the students and stuff. And I, I thought at that time, I'm home, I'm home. This, this is it. This, this is all I ever want to do. I just hope I can pay my rent. <laughs> so, um, but you uh, could do that. You ended up at the Bodleian and you were there, and I think I'm getting it right when I said that you were you became the head of digital scholarship. Is that the right title? I think the at the yeah, head of the center for head of the center for digital scholarship, where uh, I I got to visit you a couple of times, and you gave me some inside looks of the uh, Western uh, Western Wing and so forth, which was just delightful. And thank you, and uh, <laughs> pleasure. Uh, so, I. Uh, uh, and then you moved to the National Archives in the UK, where you are now. And so I'm looking into where we're going here. Um, the, um, yeah, we talked about EVO, TEI, the Text Encoding Initiative, which is still very much part, I, I wanted to, to, to mention my, my friend and colleague, uh, uh, Kiyo Nori uh, Nagasaki, whom you know, and yes. you were talking about manuscripts and that triggered me to think he's working with Buddhist manuscripts, of course, yeah. and, sh and search capability, which is, you know, extremely high end. Uh, that's making an extremely high end demand on a machine to read because not you know, the differences between the letters of one scribe to another scribe and how detailed he has to be if they're trying to train a, a machine to, to see a letter or a word, you know, from manuscript to manuscript. But I, I suppose they're getting there. But then also the text encoding initiative. And uh, you've been very involved with that over, over the years. And uh, how is that going? Are you, you, I know you're on the board of all of these things. I, I, there's so much stuff to uh, talk about, but uh, let's well, talk I, about TEI, yeah. So TEI, the Text Encoding Initiative, is this amazing um, group of group of people, and, and we use the same term for, for several aspects of it, but it's, it's a community that started in uh, 1987, I think a really long time ago, yes. where people were thinking that you know all of this computer stuff could really help us um in uh in 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 looking at texts so finding ways to encode texts using the same system so that ultimately they could speak across and we we mark texts up both so they're computer readable um 
And a really obvious example would be in a letter. You can mark up the address of the person who sent it and where it's going to and and um, the salutation, as in dear Tom, um, and, and your name, of course, and, um, and, and so on. And then you can mark up things within a text. So if I'm talking about, I don't know, health or the weather or um, animals, it, it, whatever, whatever is in there, you can mark it up in a way that's computer readable, but also because it uses XML, which is um, quite a um, extensible markup language. So it's quite a, a human friendly way of reading as well. And it's a way of making explicit in the text to, to machines and to people, um, your interpretation of it. And I love it. I, one, of the, one of the reasons I love reading books is that you feel that you're in a relationship with the characters in the book um, and another is that particularly for things that have been studied a lot like you know like Shakespeare for example is that you're also in conversation with centuries worth of editors who've all brought their own interpretations to it and the wonderful thing about the text encoding initiative is that you can you can have these conversations in a way which is you know both, both readable by computers and so they can render them so they can make it understandable in, in sort of easy ways at scale um, and and you can continue those conversations with with other with other scholars um, so yes, it's a group of people, it's, it's guidelines um, for how to do it yourself if, you, if you're marking up text, if you're editing um, text yourself, um, and, uh, and, and it's the system itself, and they're all called the TEI. And yes, I think actually last month, thank you for reminding me, I should update that. Um, I, I ended my last term, I've, I've, I've served three terms on their board of directors, which is a, um, a voluntary position, but just keeping, keeping the consortium ticking over um, and enabling the really important work of bringing the community together once a year, though it didn't happen this year. Um, and, and most importantly, really supporting the technical council who do all the, the technical work because it's a community. So, it's, um, so when you need um, a way of describing something that hasn't been described before, uh, then you ask the technical council and they will add uh, what, what we call a tag, but they'll add a, a new way, they'll add a new feature for you. And it's it, it, it's community driven and it started with people who were studying manuscripts um, from the, the Western tradition um, and now is used all over the world, Kiyonori Nagasaki being um, just one example of, of um, someone using it in, as, as you say, in Buddhist texts. Yeah. Um, that people are using it all over the world and you can use it to describe any sort of text, not just manuscripts. Um, so emails in, you know, included or things that are inscribed on stone. Um, and it's developed and continues to develop by the community that, that uses it um, almost exclusively by volunteer effort. Yeah. Um, well, well, for uh, our non-digital listeners, TEI, when you look at a, uh, a web page, for instance, and you, or you're trying to read, let's say, a literary work online, and there's a lot that is behind the presentation of that work. There's an enormous amount of code behind it that, that uh, frames its presentation, that, and that also with markup and tagging and so forth, make it catalogable and searchable and sh shareable in that way that you you can go from one text to the other. And this we can't begin to explain the whole thing in meta languages and that sort of thing. But the, the fact is that no one just types, <laughs> you can't just type a sonnet onto a page and throw it up you know, onto a, let's say a word file and throw it up on the web and have anything like that. This is a whole uh, universe of, 
uh, what would we interconnectivity, I think, between text in, in the best case, uh, when you get beyond just the just the presentation, just the way it looks and the relationship that you can have with with it on a uh, online uh, on a uh, on a computer. Uh, and that's that's just wonderful work. I am uh, happy to know people like you. Uh, you also are with the your own advisory boards. You're at the Rylands Library in Manchester, and there's a Japanese connection there too. But and I don't Is think it, it. Yeah, it it doesn't belong to Shakespeare. It belongs to the uh, well. There's the Japan Foundation and the Sasakawa Foundation. And it is concerning the collection of Japanese Edo area, uh, Edo era maps, uh, Tokunaga era. And so just so you know, when you're talking to your uh, Rylands peeps, uh, that <laughs> there, is a, there is a Japanese connection there with uh, concerning maps in particular. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, it's a fantastic group there. It's the a research institute based at the John Rylands Library, which is the special collections part of, of the University of Manchester Library. It's led by um, Hannah Barker, who's a social historian. Um, and it's it's another fantastic group of people who come together around the collections. It brings together the people who work in the library and the scholars, um, some of them visiting and some of them based at Manchester yeah. um, to do fantastic things, often, often digitally as well. So more people who are interested in, in digital approaches to to the texts that, that we work with it's a wonderful group it's, a, it's an honor to be on their on their advisory board yeah one wonderful collection too you're yes. with the uh, quill uh, out of oxford yeah. yeah which is another very interesting group uh, <laughs> yes led by nicholas cole that was yeah. software that he developed um to look at scale at the processes that um, the processes that negotiate a text so that the text that he started on was the American Constitution. He's been quite busy recently. Um, and but also uh, it, it looks at all sorts. It, it can look at any um, negotiation. It's a way of tracking and then visualizing um, the, the the debates that go into agreeing a text. So he's also worked on the Declaration of Human Rights, for example, as well as other um, other constitutions doing american things over there okay that's wonderful and a royal historical um what is it royal historical society or is it yeah the royal historical society have a um a subcommittee that's led by jane winters who's a um professor of digital humanities at, at the school of advanced study in, in in london university of london um and it's a subcommittee that looks at um, and advises on, on digital um, digital approaches to history, which of course is is right up my street. Wow, that that's just so exciting! It really is exciting, and I feel now after talking to you, I'm sorry. It's wonderful to talk to you, but I'm now feeling a little bit more in exile. I want to get over there to that um, island you live on and and visit uh, first and foremost the National Archives. And it's absolutely, I'm, I'm a complete reprobate for not having used the collection or at least visited and looked around before. But I've, I've had, you know, when we, when we go to England, usually we have a very distinct sense of purpose. You know, it's there for a conference. You have so much time there. And if you get some time off, you want to hire a car and run off and look at something 
interesting, you know, uh, and take a little bit of a holiday. And uh, so next time I get there, that's going to be first, but some oh, of these other you, places you would also. be more than welcome. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to show up there and say, hello, Pip. And you're going to go, oh, no, that guy again. Uh, I hope he hadn't been drinking white wine. Uh, and uh, so I'm going to repeat, though, that the, the work that you do, your, the digital development crosses many, many fields. And even just the field of public interest there's an enormous public interest well beyond academe in the kinds of holdings that you have. Uh, it is, uh, there is just so many treasures there. And how much, how much the work that you have done through the work with EBO and other air at TEI and so forth have benefited Shakespearean studies and individuals who may not know how much they have been benefited by your work, and of course, the work of many other people. Now, I go to Barcelona a good bit. Uh, my, uh, my, my wife's been, a, 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 my wife's children are there and so forth. So, uh, and I have a, a great love of that town as you, as you might imagine, you know, and, and, and so last year I was fortunate enough to be on sabbatical and spend a lot of time there. Uh, before the pandemic, but I remember years ago going to, to the, there's a little more of a hill kind of mountain called Monjek uh, in town where you go, you can go up and get a look of the whole city and so forth. And there's a fort up there. And I remember looking out over the port of Barcelona and seeing this enormous cruise ship coming in, you know, uh, as they do from Italy and all over. And it just struck me. I said, you know, who made that thing? You know, how, who made that thing? How, how do you make one of these things? And I was, I think the question came to mind because I was thinking about how forbiddingly large some of the projects you get involved with that I've wanted to be involved and have been involved with. And we get into it and go, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. We need an entire legion of people to get this done or lots and lots of time. But the answer that came to my mind looking at that ship is, you know who made that? A lot of people made that. A lot That's a of lovely people. analogy. And it, absolutely, know? a lot of people over a lot of time, over centuries in, in, yeah. in many cases, have put together these collections. And one of the things that I love about digital is that even more people now can get involved. And one of the projects that we're working on is called Engaging Crowds. And it's looking at, at crowdsourcing, at citizen research, at volunteers donating their time to these projects to, to find out more about, about records in, in our case, um, but about um, it, finding out more knowledge in, in all areas. We're working with colleagues at Zooniverse, which is a huge crowdsourcing platform, but you know, the Oxford English Dictionary, as mentioned earlier, is based on on crowdsourcing. People have always been enormously generous with their with their time and with their expertise um, inside and outside universities and, and formal organizations like archives and, and libraries. And it's you know, understanding how we can make um, how we can make those projects more pleasurable for them um, and and get what you know, the information that we need out so that we can share it back with with more people is um, is still something we're keenly interested in. And on the flip side of that would be automation, bringing in digital um, methods. So 
getting the computers to do all the things that they can do. You were talking about Kinori Nagasaki and his computer vision, reading, um, working towards reading Buddhist texts. Uh, we have a project um, led by my colleague Laura Endelova, looking at uh, working with colleagues at the University of Surrey, looking at computer vision to search um, by image. So not not using it this time to read text or make sense of, of text, but um, to 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 um, as a, as a new way into collections, which are very hard to get into if you're not a super specialist and know all the language and they've been brilliantly catalogued so I think it's this that that's what the that's what this moment is about for me that our digital technology is expanding so vastly but also the the people who will benefit from it and the people who who feed into it and finding ways to bring those those two together um, is hugely exciting and a big challenge for all of us it really really is uh, now, I would like you, after we finish, I would like you to stay for a moment uh, because sure. I wanted to debrief with, with you just a, a bit. But I wanted to thank you again from the bottom of my heart for spending your... Now, wait a second. This is Wednesday evening. This is your Wednesday morning. So you're in the middle of a work week and you you were gracious enough to take time off from the, from the important work that you're doing to talk with us. And I wanted to assure you that I will make sure to, that my Japanese colleagues in the Shakespeare Society and uh, what's called the Eibun Gakkai, the, um, the Literary Society of Japan and other people in the digital humanities community in Japan can uh, see you virtually. And what we're going to do is if we, if we beg you once it's possible, will you come back and see us again uh, here in Tokyo and oh. elsewhere in Japan? Would you be able to find a, a, a way to Japan once, once you're able to? Tom, it would be an honor. I, I've been lucky enough to visit Japan a couple of, of times and, and seen you and, and colleagues there and learn more about the fantastic work you're doing. It would be wonderful to bring our work um, well, to, well, to, to, share is, it, to share it with you. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. This is a substitute for a grant that I got uh, for a grant that I got to do a symposium. And you were on the short list of people I wanted to get here because I wanted digital people uh, the digital humanities people who work in archives and libraries, like Eric, I uh, spoke with Eric Johnson, and I wanted scholars and I wanted actors like Ben, and I wanted to, to combine them with some of my colleagues here in Japan, uh, who are unlike me, actually Japanese, and you know grew up here and have a a, a very wonderful, interesting perspective many perspectives on Shakespeare and so forth, and have a little symposium to talk about the things that we've talked about here, and also to talk about our lives and to get to know each other. So that's why we have included all those things. But again, thank you so very much. Uh, it's just been wonderful to have you thank here. Thank you for the invitation, Tom, and what a lovely way to spend a Wednesday morning. Thank you for, for okay. your time. But yes, it's wonderful to see you, and thank you very much. Okay, and you guys take care over there. And we, we will try to you hear too. it too. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.